Okay, so Brian, on this week's episode, uh, Gene is with us. Can you talk about how you know Gene and maybe where the audience would know Gene from? Uh, I've known Gene for, uh, I don't even know how many years. It's been a long time. And, and I met him at a comic book convention, I think in San Jose. I'm pretty sure it was San Jose. And I was there, I had done some, a book for Dark Horse, and I was there, and uh, he was there with a friend of his, and he was young. He was a kid. I mean, I was a lot younger, but he was a kid. And uh, he had, like, a, a little zine he had made, a little, like, comic he'd made. I think I still have it someplace. And uh, anyway, we kind of hit it off and hung out that those couple of days I was there, and then uh, sort of lost touch with him. But he was keeping track of my career. I didn't know that. Um, and then uh, he ended up doing um, a book for first, second, um, uh, American-born Chinese, which became a huge deal. Yeah, it was a big deal. <laughs> yeah, became a huge deal, and he became a huge deal. And now he's done, you know, uh, Superman versus the Klan and uh, uh, all kinds of books um, and, and keeps racking up awards. And it's a pretty amazing thing to see what happened with him. Um, and he actually told first second about me, which is why. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, which is why they, they read Invisible Ink and liked that and then asked me to do a book. Um, I did Old Souls and then I have the two books coming out um, later from them. But that's all because of Gene. Um, couldn't be a nicer guy. Couldn't be a smarter guy. Couldn't be a cooler dude. Like, he just couldn't. Um, I'm I'm really happy to see what's happened with them. It's it's been amazing to watch, especially seeing him as a kid with this little you know homemade comic, and become this big deal. So, uh, and sometimes I see people, um, like I'll teach people or I'll I'll talk to younger people, and they I can see something in their work sometimes, and I go, "You're going to be somebody," and I've seen it enough where I can tell. But they can't believe it because of where they happen to be at that moment. They're like, how could I go from here to there? But I've seen it happen a lot. And Gene's one of those people I got to see it happen with. So it can happen. All right. This week's episode, Gene's going to share some wisdom with us. Also, a good reminder to take care of your friends. Because see how it's also two-way street. So, all right. Hello, and welcome to You Are a Storyteller, Masters of the Craft, a conversational series hosted by author and filmmaker Brian McDonald. In this episode, Brian is joined by cartoonist and lecturer Jean Lewin Yang, author of the award-winning graphic novel American-Born Chinese. Brian and Jean talk about what it's like to pursue a career in the comic industry as a person of color and how truly feeling the emotions of their characters makes for better storytelling. So we, when we met, now this is my recollection of our meeting. I think, I, was it... Um, was it San Jose? It was. It was somewhere in the Bay Area. It, it might have been. Yeah, it might have. It was either San Jose or Oakland. It was either after an ape I, or after a WonderCon. It was a WonderCon. It was a WonderCon. I was there because I had done some Dark Horse stuff. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I it was forget. The ape Sapien. Oh, was it the Ape Sapien I, stuff? Okay, I think so. I think it was about to come out or just come out, something like that. Yeah, I don't think it had come out yet. Okay. That's my guess. It hadn't come out yet. Um, I think I had done Predator already. I think that okay. was out. So I did Predator. And that, anyway, I was there for Dark Horse. And then you were there. You had a, a zine, a little a Xeroxed sort of zine, I think. Mm -hmm. 
and um, and you gave gave me one. And for years, I would be digging through my old comics and stuff, and I would find it, and I'd be like, "What whatever happened to this guy? Whatever would happen to this guy?" And and I would I would wonder. And then uh, like, yeah, those guys were cool. I like those guys. Whatever happened to those guys? And the next thing I knew, you were, you're like the guy. You're like boom, you know. And I bought uh, uh, American Born Chinese. And didn't recognize you as that guy. Like, I bought it. And I was like, this is cool. Then, and then, and then uh, because of uh, your association with First Second, uh, they had heard about me through you. This is why I consider you part of my origin story. Because they heard about you, uh, heard about me through you, and started reading the book, uh, Invisible Ink. And then, from what I understand, started um, having other writers read it. Um, as part of like, hey, if you want to write, you know, read this book. And then somebody, uh, I think Mark Siegel got the idea. Why don't we call him as Brian and see if he wants to write a book for us? So, um, so I've written three books for them. One's out, three books for them. So that's on you. So, <laughs> so. That's awesome. By, by the way, Old Souls was amazing. It was oh, amazing. Thank you. Thank both, you. Both sides, both the, the writing and the art. I don't know. Did they pair you up with less or? Um, they gave me a uh, they gave me um, a list of people to choose from, and I chose less from the list. Good choice. So, well, it worked really well. I thought it, your partnership worked really well. I really liked working with them. We had a good time. And the cool thing, I've never seen anybody do this. He's really into the visual storytelling aspect of the comics, not just the drawing, although his drawings are out of control. He's really into the visual mm -hmm. storytelling part of it. And what he does, now that was a 200 and whatever page book. He lays out the entire book, reads it, reads the script, lays out the entire book, then lays out the book a second time, the entire book, because now he knows how to do it. He's been through it once. He'll lay it, and then he starts drawing after he lays wow. the book out twice. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it does kind of explain a lot. That, that book just read, I mean, it was both. It was both. It read really smoothly, like you... It, it it got to the point where you would forget that you were reading a book, right? Oh, that, that sort you. of it's just you and the story together. Oh, that's so that, yeah. Can't ask for a better compliment than that. So thanks. But he did an amazing yeah. job. I really liked working with him. I hope I get to again. And yeah. he's he's just a, a sweet human being uh, to top it all off, and and just easy to work with. And um, and my notes were um, minimal, but they were always welcome. You know. Um, because he knew I wasn't just giving him notes, you know, for no reason. I'm like, well, yeah. this, I don't understand what's happening in this panel. Oh, that makes sense. Then he would fix it, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, uh, but yeah, uh, instead of uh, in the past, sometimes it's been like, but I like that panel. It's like, but I can't see what's happening. And if I wrote it and I don't know what's happening, that seems like a problem to me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, you yeah. know, like I, you know, so anyway, but he was great. So I like working with him. And then on um, the next two books, um, I got to choose those artists outright. So um, I feel really good about those two. I, it's cool. It's, it's casting a lot of time. You know what I mean? You have a story, yeah, like, yeah, you know, uh -huh. it's ca casting. And I was able to cast, I would say the uh, artist for the next two books, which um, really, well, I'm looking forward to it. Do you have a, a drop date on, on either of them? No drop date on either of them. Uh, the, fir the first one uh, will be land of the dead. Um, okay. Which is being drawn by Toby Cypress which is his pages are they're so good they're so good toby uh i i suggested toby they were suggesting artists to me and i'm like none of these people are right and i suggested toby 
And they were like, we don't know. Have him do some sample pages. So he did some sample pages. I wrote up the pages for him to draw. He did the sample pages. And then they lost their minds and were like, this guy's amazing. And now when his pages come in, everybody in the company is like, oh, my God, look at these pages. <laughs> yeah. No, they're beautiful. It's going to be uh, – uh, it's it, it's going to be I, – I keep telling him to clear space for his Eisner because uh, he's doing an amazing job. And, and I would be surprised if he didn't get uh, a nod from somebody about the art. It's beautiful. So That's awesome. Looking yeah. forward to it, dude. Really yeah. looking forward to it. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And the, yeah, yeah. And the other one has just started to be drawn, which is the memoir about my brother's murder. Okay. So that's, um, um, that's going to be, that, that artist is really good too. Um, Anson Jew, you know, Anson stuff. I know Anson stuff. He's great. Yeah. So yeah. Anson. Yeah. He's great. Wasn't he in animation for a while? Is he still working in animation? He, uh, works in, does a lot of movie stuff. So okay. whatever. Oh, like storyboarding. Yeah. yeah. A lot of movie stuff. Anson's great. Yeah, Anson is Anson's all right. I've known Anson a long time, and uh, and his brother Benton, both mm -hmm. amazing. Um, although I knew Benton first, and then saw Anson, and said, "Hey, Benton," uh, <laughs> and he's like, "I'm not I'm sure Benton. they get that a lot." Dude. And he's like, "Cause they're twins." But yeah, but he didn't say when I said, "Hey, Benton," he's, "I'm not Benton," and I looked at him like, "Benton, come on," and he goes, "I'm not Benton," and this is the first time I've met him, and he just kept saying, <laughs> "I'm not Benton," as like. Finally, he said, well, I'm his twin brother. I was like, yeah. dude, don't do that to people. That's not cool. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that's the way they get like a little bit of joy out of this thing that happens over and over again. Right? I guess. Yeah. One friend of mine said, my, a friend of mine who knows them said, you know, it's funny because if you talk to them, they only see what's different about them. Yeah. Right. So they're like, well, he's got more hair and he's like, whatever it is, you know, it's like, yeah, mm, yeah you are <laughs> identical twins. That is what you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, anyway. Uh, but both of them are draw like maniacs. They're both. Yeah. So yeah. They're both, they're both amazingly talented. And, and they were both around in the nineties too. When you they and I were. met, they, they were, they were in that same scene. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Um, I think at that time they were at, uh, I think Benton was at ILM and I think mm -hmm. Anson was at um, LucasArts doing game stuff yeah time. yeah i remember i remember trading minis with them they, oh yeah um, yeah oh cool yeah a different yeah. time different era in, in comics i know i remember i remember that time meeting you too now so you what you didn't mention was um at that after party you had placed a copy of harry the cop which is a comic you did for slave labor right yes yeah, on labor the coffee habits. table and then my friend derek and i read it and we're talking about it and look, I mean, it was a good book. It was a yeah. good book, yeah. right? Yeah. And then sure, you man. just watched, you watched us talk it through, and then you came up and introduced her. So. Oh, is that what I did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, sounds, that sounds like me. <laughs> that, that, that sounds, yeah, I don't and, then, and, then, and then we talked about, we talked about a bunch of stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah Hair the Cop is having a slight resurgence at this particular moment. Yeah, who's, who's it with now? Well, it's not, I'm not uh, republishing it. Oh, you're um, not? Have you thought no. about doing it? Um, yeah, but I'm not going to. Um, I, I'm not going to because, um, you know, it's a book about police brutality and you think, well, why wouldn't you do that? But I was in my twenties when I wrote that book hmm. and I stand by what I wrote at, in my twenties, but it's hard for me in my fifties to stand by that book in the way that I wrote it. It's a rawer book than I would I write see. now, I you see. know? 
Um, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's not tempered. It's not nuanced. It's not, you know what I mean? It's, it's a, a 20 whatever year old person, right? 25 or six, or whatever I was, year old person. And that's a different person. I mean, it is part of the conversation though. Don't you think like, like what other, what other book dating back to the nineties talks about that issue? I can't think of a single one. Yeah. I mean, maybe did, did, uh, did K Chronicles tackle it? That was probably a little bit later, right? Maybe in the late nineties. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah, but I don't know. I don't feel like, uh, you know what? I, uh, I'm too tired. I don't want to fight the fight that way. I don't want to have the arguments about it. I don't want to hear the blue lives matter. I don't want it. I don't done. I did that. I'm done doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, for now. Uh, although in the memoir, I talk a lot about that kind of stuff and I think it's a little bit more nuanced. So mm-hmm. maybe that's part of it. I did scratch that itch, but in a different way. Are you are you done with the memoir? I'm done writing it, yeah. You're done writing it, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Unlike me, you can do more than one thing. So I, I, <laughs> I, I can do – it looks like I do more than one thing. I can only really do one thing. So I can, I can write scripts and I can uh, direct things. Then I'm done. I, you know, so, so I, I can't do things. Um, but you have other skills and other things that you can do and things that you were doing, right? So you were teaching um, computer science. Is that correct? I was. I was teaching computer science for a long time, for 17 <laughs> years. But, dude, you teach too. That's, a, that's at least one other thing. Yeah. I feel like you I, do a lot of things. Yeah, everybody thinks that, but it's not true. I, 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 I can teach the stuff I know how to do. <laughs> You know, teaching is its own thing, though, right? Teach, teaching. Te- okay, teaching is its own thing, but I couldn't teach anything. All of yeah. us are like that. I mean, yeah. and, and I would argue, I would argue that teaching story is actually because I've taught story and I've taught, um, I've taught computer science. I think teaching story is harder because there's no right answers. Well, yeah, it's harder to evaluate. It's harder to learn how to yeah. evaluate. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, it's not like the numbers add up to this and there you go. That's yeah. not like that. Um, Although I think it's more like that than people think. Yeah, that's true. I forgot. I forgot about that section in your book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's more like that than people think. I think that it's um, it's hard to to grasp onto at first, but once you start to get it, it becomes more and more solid and more and more concrete. Um, and then, strangely, you come out the other side of it, and it gets kind of squishy again. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Um, it's a it's a strange thing. But it's a squishiness that you know how to how to manipulate. It's uh, yeah, it's a it's a strange journey. Um, but at first, it gets way more concrete, and then um, so I think that people that think it's kind of a squashy thing that's hard to get a hold of, um, and then therefore think there are no rules, are partially right. Right? Mm-hmm. It is a squishy thing that's hard to get a hold of. Yeah. But, yeah. But, there, yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? But yeah, yeah. but you can't. You can't just live in that space until you get the it's music, I think, is a similar thing. Music is math, right? Uh-huh. uh-huh. But even though music is math, the, what happens with music is kind of hard to define. It's so abstract. It's an abstract version of math, right? Mm-hmm. So, so when something moves you musically, there's a method there, right? Like if you're John Williams, right? There's obviously a method. There's obviously craft that goes into being John Williams and 
writing the score for Raiders of the Lost Ark or something. But then there's the weird part of it where you go, I don't know how you define that. Like, I don't know how you make a march for Indiana Jones that sounds inevitable, that sounds right, that encompasses the feeling that you needed to. Like, that part is magic. Yeah. That's the yeah. alchemy of it, right? But here's the thing about magic. Here's the thing about magic. If you, if you, uh, if you so read some old fairy tale or something where there's magic, here's what's interesting. Magic has to have the right ingredients too, right? I got to have my eye of newt. I got to have my bat wing and my wolf's bane and my whatever, right? It's the same thing. It's like, well, even though it's magic, it has to have the right ingredients or the magic won't happen. That lecture that I just gave on your, your stuff, I began with the passage from uh, Making Comics from Scott McCloud. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember this, but he starts off with these two panels. Uh, uh, he says, you know, when it comes to making comics, there are no rules and here they are. So right. that's, that's how I said it. I said, you know, there are no rules to this, but here they are. <laughs> and, and, then, and then we talked through, we talked through theme. We talked through um, the approach to, to theme that you talk about in both of your books. Oh, cool. Well, yeah. I'm glad you find it useful. Oh, it was so, super useful. Oh, was good. Super, I mean, that's, that's sort of how that, that first second thing happened. So in, internally, first second has uh, a group called the Story Trust where we kind of critique each other's work and we needed a, like a basis for it, right? We needed right. some kind of common language. So we're talking through craft books and I thought that's how, that's how, that's how Invisible Ink came up. That, oh, that's the go. common language. Oh, cool. All right. Now, now I know the, the inside scoop on what, yeah. how that happened. So, uh, well, let's talk a little bit about craft because um, I think that's one of the reasons people have come to this, uh, this uh, show is to, is to hear craft and hear how people who are practitioners in the craft approach their work. So, so um, is there, have you seen a, a difference in how you used to approach your work and how you approach it now? And what is that difference? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And what, so how have you grown? Like when you started, how did you think versus how you create now? Yeah. I, I feel like when I was younger uh, and, I, I did things more by instinct. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I did things without totally understanding why I did them. And then, and then I, I think at some point you just run out, you run out of instinct. You got to figure out why you did it in the first place. Right. And that's when I started reading my craft books and, and, and really looking carefully at the way stories are, are put together. Uh, and, and now I feel like I, I have to be much more conscious of it. I, I had I don't know I don't remember who said this, but I, I'd read somewhere about authors that every author has one book that they're kind of given that just kind of falls out of them, mm -hmm. and then after that they have to kind of work at all the other ones, and that's that's how I feel like I feel like when I was younger stuff would kind of fall out of me wasn't always good but it did, and now it feels much harder to do. Mm -hmm. Do do you find the same thing? No. Okay. <laughs> but uh, well, I I won't say that it's. It's not harder. It is, but it's different. So mm -hmm. I think, I, and, and I've talked about it a lot on the show, and so people are probably tired of hearing about it, but I think my dyslexia had a lot to do with that. Mm. Because the thing that dyslexia gives you, uh, when it takes away um, the ease of reading or the ease of, when it takes that away from you, it gives you another thing. Um, and what it gave me was um, a, a way to be analytical about it the thing like okay 
this doesn't come so easily to me. I have to think about it differently. I have to be more methodical about like, how does the story work? How do these things work? So I was very young when I was trying to figure that stuff out. Mm. I was, I was, um, I always say it's like a, a person who becomes an engineer or something that they used to take apart their toys when they were a kid, you know, mm-hmm. figure out how they worked. I did that with stories. How do they work? Why do they work like this? I took them apart to figure out how they worked. So I would hear somebody tell a story and maybe it would be funny. And I'm like, why was that funny? Oh, Mm. because they, you know, and and that's the way I would do it. And so in that way, I was never really working from instinct. I see. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, if I was, it was before I can remember creating that. I see. But it does get harder because the bar gets higher. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, you, you start you start to have an idea of of your idea of what quality is. And then that gets harder. The, the more folks like, OK, I don't want to have make these mistakes. Boom, boom. Like when you don't know anything, you don't know what mistakes you're trying not to make. Right. Yeah. But when you know yeah. stuff, you're like, well, I don't want to fall into this trap and I don't want to do that. I want to make sure this is clear and I want to. Right. And so I always think of it as a target. And the target starts off pretty big. I want to write a comic or I want to write a screenplay or I want to do a thing, right? That can be hard the first time you do it, but it's a relatively easy target to hit because (laughs) you don't have any other, all you want to do is hit it, right? So Mm -hmm. you can write as many pages or draw as many pages, you can do that. But then you start thinking about, well, I really want to have my characters be three-dimensional. All the targets short and smaller now. I want to make sure that everything I do is on theme. Oh, well, then it gets smaller, right? And so it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and it gets harder and harder, but you get better in the process. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's true. I yeah, that's true. That target analogy is exactly right. Yeah. 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 You know what you're trying to hit now. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and what, what you're willing to just move on from becomes less and less, right? You're, you're just, you make a page and you're not willing to let it go. Whereas in your 20s, you would be. Yeah, you'd be like, fine, I'm moving on, you know. Um, And some people can create that way. I remember John Byrne when he was doing, I can't remember how many books he was drawing. Like, he was doing, like, four monthly books or something, like The Avengers and, I don't know, four, like, books, I I think. Monthly books. Now, most artists have a hard time with one monthly book. He was doing, like, four, I think. Four, three or four. And somebody asked him, I remember an interview where they said, well, how can you do so many books? And he goes, well, I don't get paid to erase. Right? And so he was the person who just moved forward and I think tried to improve as he moved forward, but never went back to fix stuff. Or, I see. Yeah. I see. So that's an interesting way to work. Yeah, that is. Yeah. Yeah. Do, you, do you feel like that's the, that's the best way to go is to maximize your output and just trust that all that practice will make you better? Or do you think it's better to erase? I think it's a combination. I don't think it's an either or thing. Okay. Right. I think that um, one friend of mine who, who I, I may have on the show, I, I should talk to him about it, but um, he used to be a Seinfeld writer. And he goes, he said, people will give him scripts to read or no, they will talk to him about read, writing scripts. And they say, he says, well, they'll write the first 10 pages of their script. And then they're not quite right. So they go back and they write them again. And then they write them again. And then they write them again. And he said, they think they're writing. Which I think is really interesting. It's a way not to move forward, right? I have to be perfect. Mm. It has to be perfect. It has to be perfect. And then that's a way not to progress. Mm. So that is a trap that people can fall into. And so in that way, yes, you have to just keep moving forward. Um, Mm. 
Stephen J. Cannell, uh, television writer and novelist later in his life, said that finish everything you start. Just finish it. Yeah. Finish yeah. everything you start, um, which was really good advice. Have I done that? No, not really. But I think it's good advice. <laughs> you know, I think I finish most things I start, but I, there are a few things that I just, you know, uh, let sit. But um, and sometimes I'm not ready to write stuff. That's I feel like that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been ideas I've had. Um, I was just talking to another writer about this. Uh, ideas I've had where I go, yeah, I'm not ready to write that yet. I'm not good enough yet. That I've got. I need more years on me before I can write that the way I think it should mm-hmm. be written. Do you have a book that's already out that was like that? Was Old Souls like that? No. It wasn't? No. Old Souls, Souls, when I wrote it, it was a kind of breakthrough for me in some ways. I had been writing a long time by then, but I used to write a script and it would have like a black lead. And then everybody would say, you can't do this. You can't have a black lead. It won't sell in Germany or it won't do this. It won't do that. Right. So, so like you would just hear that. So, so I learned how to write mainstream stuff. Right. <laughs> Right, which meant have a white guy lead. That's what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I learned how to do that. And then now it's all shifted. So when I write something like that, they go, but you're black. Why are you writing? It's like for 30 years, you told yeah. me, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, um, so that's an interesting shift. But, but I think in that script, even though there, there's a white lead for that reason, I think I tried to be honest about the race stuff that I did have in that piece. And I think I would have shied away from it before. I really went for the emotion in a very specific way. Um, somebody was asking me about it recently. You know, there's a, there's a, there's the grief over a, a dead child in the piece. And this, this, mm-hmm. I may have had something different to draw from if, if, if my brother had been, uh, if we had been after my brother was murdered, but at the time I had nothing to draw from really. Uh, and so um, a little bit, uh, because a good friend of mine had died and I watched his father go through some grief. Actually, that was sort of impetus for writing that piece, watching my friend's father go through uh, the grief of losing his son. But what I did is I, I went to the cemetery and I, um, I went to all the chi- children's graves that I could find. And I stood there and I tried to imagine the grief of all of those parents. And I remember there was one uh, little plot and it had a little lamb it's an old old grave and you know like even uh rock stone seems like it melts over time even you know so it's kind of melted and and uh, but the but you could read the inscription and it said our dreams lie buried here wow yeah and i and I, I stood there for a long time and uh, and i did that with all the children's graves i could find at this cemetery and then I was able to tap into that emotion and that grief to write that piece. And that was a different thing for me. Um, and so um, there are things in there that were high watermarks for me uh, at that moment. Um, I hope that each thing gets better. So I think that the land of the dead book is a little bit better than that. I think um, mm. um, it each thing I think is the best I can do at that moment. I don't phone it in. So, and then the memoir, I think it might be one of those things that defines me. You know, you have a piece of work that defines you and mm. sometimes it's hard even to crawl out from underneath that work. It's so massive a piece. I don't know if you had that with American born Chinese or not. Yeah. I, I felt a little bit of that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I definitely did. Yeah. The shadow of that thing. 
yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, you're like, well, I did that a while ago, and it's still yeah, but, a thing. There's nothing yeah. wrong with it, right? There's nothing, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're you're lucky as a creator if you have that, if you get yeah, that, right? Absolutely, yeah. Can't so, complain too much. No, you can't. But no. but still, if you're still working and you want to produce work and people keep bringing up the thing you did, you know, how yeah. many ever years ago, it can become a thing. And I, I have a feeling the memoir is going to be one of those mm. pieces. Is that an adult book? My contract says it's more like a mid-grade thing, you know, like whatever. Middle grade? Yeah. Oh, okay. But I didn't write it any differently than I would write it. I see. You know what I mean? But you don't I, think about age demographics or anything like that. No. I, I think about what's appropriate, mm. but I don't think about it in terms of how I construct the story or things I want to say. There were things in the book that I thought, was this going too far? And I was like, well, these are things that really happen. If, if middle grade people can read Hunger Games, they can read this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, so, no, I don't really think about it. I just try to make sure it's not something completely inappropriate. But if it's something emotionally difficult or nuanced or whatever, then I didn't shy away from that at all. Like, yeah. You know, um, that just was what it was. So I don't think so. I think I think it'll um, I think it'll be marketed to a certain demographic. But I, I have a feeling uh, because of some of the things I talk about that it will if it, if if it does what I I hope it will do, I think it'll it'll spread and branch out a little bit. Mm. Um, yeah, the people who've read the script kind of feel that same way about it. Okay. I think there's just something about it, maybe because it's my brother's murder and yeah. stuff around that that um, I had to honor that experience in a very specific way. You know what yeah. it, You know, um, yeah. So it was you know completely honest emotionally. Um, you know, memory's a weird thing when you try to write an, uh, a memoir. Memory, like, it's as, it's as honest as I can remember, factually, yeah. right? Yeah. But emotionally, I think it's very honest. But facts, I might like, oh, that happened when you were five, not when you were six. I don't know, you know? But I wrote things down as I remembered them, and, and the, it, that was really about tapping into the emotional honesty of things. So is that way. where you start most of your stories is emotion? Like visiting children's graves seems like it was a way of getting in touch with emotion. I just don't feel like it'll work without it. Okay. And so it's not necessarily where I start, but if I'm going to, I, I don't want to exploit emotions. Right. So I don't want to have um, uh, the death of a child be nothing more than a plot point in my piece. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that exploitation is right. I don't, it doesn't sit well with me to do it that way. Um, so I don't start there, but I feel like um, I do have to go there. I have to get there. And do you, do you feel like you have to understand the emotion or do you have to actually feel it? Like when you're writing it, do you have to feel the emotion? Or is it enough to have it, hold it in your head? I have to feel it mm. or some piece of it. I see. I don't know what it would be like to lose the child. I don't know. Sure. I could observe what I saw. People I know who, who lost children, I could observe that. Um, and I could try my best to empathize and stretch and try to imagine it. And um, 
and then I can, I can, I use a little bit of, uh, it's not the same, but I think, um, this is what I've noticed when you lose a pet, for instance, this is what I've noticed about losing pets or, or having to put pets down, which I've had to do a couple of times. The grief I feel for pets is the same as the grief I feel for people, only it doesn't last as long. Mm-hmm. Right? So you put your cat down and it's awful or your dog down and it's awful, but it's not as awful for as long. Right? You can, you can mm-hmm. more quickly, at least for me, get to that place where you're like, ah, that, boy, I miss that dog. Oh, I miss that cat. And it's different. It doesn't come with the other stuff, if it's uh, a person, it comes with a lot of different memories and nuance. And, oh, I remember we had that fight about whatever and we made up, you know, whatever it is. So there's a lot more uh, baggage, maybe because those relationships are a lot more complicated, right? Relationships with pets are not that complicated. And you sort of know going in, I'm probably going to outlive this pet, you know, unless you get a tortoise. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I tapped into that a little bit, too. Like, okay, I've had to do that, and that was awful. I remember I had one cat and um, we had to put him down. It was really sad. And, and, uh, and they gave him, you know, they give the, 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 the animal thing to paralyze them first, kind of put them out and then Mm -hmm. give them the injection. And when they went to give the cat the first shot, he was so sick that he just yowled in pain. Like just getting the shot was completely painful for it. It was, I never heard a sound like that in my life. And, um, that was hard. And I, I, I revisited that, that feeling and that sound a lot when I was writing. Mm. Um, um, so that coupled with visiting the graves gave me some sense of it. At least I could be as honest as I could be. So you are trying to be present in the emotion as you're writing. That, yeah. that seems like it is actually a goal. Yeah, I feel like I have to be. Okay. Uh, it's somebody's quote uh no no tears in the writer no tears in the reader yeah and i feel like that's true i feel like you can't you i feel like there's a kind of energy that goes into the work um that a if you do it right there's a piece of your soul on the page if you do it right and it's hard to take a piece of your soul and put it on it you rip it off it's the, yeah. it's painful and so um i i think that that energy that you put in emotional energy um, and effort in other ways, but certainly the emotional energy is there and it's trapped on that page and people can extract it. People can get, you know, the thing could be a hundred years old or 200 years old, but if the emotion is true, I think that anybody Mm. can access it, Um, but you have to put it in or people can't get it out. Mm. Mm. And I had a friend who was uh, uh, kind of a genius at that kind of writing. Um, He was very good at putting his soul on a page um, but he was a very raw person emotionally in general. Like he was just this antenna for emotions and empathy and, you know, but he was very good at going to places that a lot of people won't go to when they work anyway, but enough about me. You're asking too much about me and I'm not finding out enough about you. So, uh, let's find out more about you and how you work. So let's talk about that emotion. How much, how much? Yeah. I mean, that's that, that the reason I'm asking so much about it is because I feel like that's something that I've been, um, struggling with lately you know what i mean like i i do think sometimes you know i'm married i feel sometimes i feel sorry for my wife for being married to a a writer yeah because i feel like so my wife has a sister 
who's married to a doctor, right? Okay. And he's a surgeon. He sees, like we, we talk about work all the time and he sees some crazy stuff. He's in yeah. crazy situations all the time. But he, in order to be a good doctor, in order to be a good surgeon, he actually has to maintain a certain level of emotional distance. Right, right? sure. Otherwise he can't, he can't perform if, he, right. if, he, if he's like thinking about like the human being that he's actually operating on. Sure, that makes um, sense. Whereas I feel like for me, it's kind of the opposite. Like yeah, I actually have to enter into the emotions, but that ends up, that ends up affecting me as a, as a, as a, as a spouse and as a, as a dad, like it's, yeah. it's hard for me to sometimes turn off the, the negative impulse. Oh yeah. I have that same issue. Right. So th- then that, that, that's, it creates this weird tension. It creates this weird tension between your responsibilities to the actual people in your life Right. And your responsibilities to the fictional people that you're trying to create on the page. There's a responsibility to the reader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. It's the responsibility. Oh, of the you're, you're, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. 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 yeah responsibility. You're right. Yeah. You're right. So that's what it is. It's like, well, you know, as far as I'm concerned, here's the way it goes. I'll if I, you know, back in the old days when you could go to the movies, when I would go to the movies, <laughs> and. Um, uh, I felt like people didn't give me 100%. Like they didn't bother to tell me a story that was any good or try mm-hmm. to even. I feel like, hey, I paid money for this. Yeah. Right? And I always feel like if somebody's going to plop down money for my thing, they may not like it. But it won't be because I didn't give everything I could give to it. Um, you know, because I feel a responsibility to that reader. Um, because they're really trading, um, you know, money doesn't come easily to people. They have to, you know, that's hours of their life that they're trading. Right. Do you, do you feel like you have to create a wall between your work and your personal life? Like some kind of emotional, I don't know, detox zone when you move from one spot to the other? I try. I'm not good at it. And so because I'm not good at it, I often, um, will shy away from a project because of it. I go, oh, I'm going to have to disappear for a while into this world. Yeah. Because it's, it's an all-encompassing thing for me. Um, I might produce more work if that wasn't true, but I just feel like uh, I wouldn't be a decent human being if I actually wrote more. So I, you know, I don't write all the time. Mm. I think about writing a lot, but I don't write all the time. I have to be very specific about like, okay, I'm going to take this time. I'm going to carve this time out. This is means I'm not going to be emotionally available to, you know, to my wife and people in the same way, you know, that I would be otherwise. Um, and I don't know a way around it. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I wish, I wish I did. I don't, I'm not sure if there is one. Um, I can just be conscious of it. I guess maybe it's just a, it's a common problem that comes with the, the profession, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I look at, yeah, look at me versus my brother-in-law. He's just so stable, <laughs> like so emotionally stable. You know what I mean? Like he like he like almost had somebody die on the table that day, but he's still like super stable. Whereas right. I'm working with like fictional people, <laughs> like fictional deaths. And I'm yeah. Well, I don't think that they are fictional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're trying to. You're right. You're right. It's not. They're they're fictional people getting at something very real right right yeah right 
And so, yeah, I think that, well, there's the interesting thing about fictional people. I would say that there are fictional people in the history of storytelling who have had just as much impact on the world as actual people. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right? You know? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. You know? Yeah. So, um, so fictional people are, are, are powerful in that way. Yeah. You know? Um, you know, King Lear is not a real person. Seems yeah. kind of like you. You know what I mean? Sh- yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes is not a real person. Sherlock Holmes never lived. Yeah. Or even fictionalized versions of real people, right? Are sometimes right. even more impactful than the actual person. Yeah. 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 Well, look what happened to Alexander Hamilton. He probably hasn't, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't you know, yeah. So, you know, uh, yeah. Like he's probably more famous now than he probably ever was. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, yeah. You know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, people outside of America actually care about him now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, America's a lot bigger than it was then. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. It's only 13 colonies, you know. Yeah. It wasn't that hard to be famous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I would say that, but you, but you owe, um, I think you owe something to your reader, that honesty to your readers. Um. And so it just comes at a price to do that work at the level that you're, if you're trying to do it at a certain level, it comes at a price. Now, if you're not trying to do that, if you're just like, I just want to people punching each other and then, you know, that's my story. Okay. Well then you can probably, you know, you're probably available to everybody in your life, but that's your work then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And even that work, the best of it still has something true in it. The best superhero story has something very true in it. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, I think that's just the that's just the, uh, that's the fuel, that's the fuel that powers the, the engine, of your story. So, do you actively try to structure your life so that you have time away from your work? Well. It's, it's, you know, for years I tried to get a monthly comic book and it didn't work out. Um, so I wanted to delve into that world, um, a world for a long period of time. I also like the idea of the regular paycheck. I was down with that. Right, right, right. But I, I, I really wanted to, to see what it would be like to explore characters over a long period of time. And, um, uh, but that never happened. And so I would say because I all my writing has been freelance and sort of piecemeal for the most part. Um, I haven't had that issue to worry about. Like if I'm not working, I'm not working. Every every now and then I'll write something on spec. Um, And then I'm very like old souls was written on spec. Um, And so uh, if I have a burning desire to tell that story. And I also think that um, if you have an idea, I've lost a lot of ideas by sitting on them. So I sit on them mm-hmm. long enough and then somebody else does it. Whenever I have an idea, I know the clock is ticking on it. So I'm like, okay, I have this idea. I think that's a good idea. The clock is ticking. I may lose that idea if I don't write it. Now, do I like it enough to do it right now? Do I feel like I can do it right now? No, it's gonna require often research. I do a lot of research when I'm mm-hmm. writing. So it's like, okay, well, and my research is, uh, I have two kinds of research that I do. I have what, what I call 
I, I, I don't know if I read this somewhere or got this somewhere, but I, I think it's mine, but it, it might not be, which is I have soft research and I have hard research. So uh, hard research is you go, what year was the War of 1812? Right, mm. <laughs> right, right. You look it up. Huh. Right, right. You know, whatever it is. Um, very definite facts and data and those kinds of things, right? What was George Washington's middle name? You know, things like that, right? Soft research is, what was it like to live in the 1770s? I'm going to read everything I can about the 1770s or things written in the 1770s to get a sense of the voice of people, to get a sense of what the daily life was like, to get a sense, right? All things that, um, that I'll need when I'm in that world, immersed in that world, trying to recreate it on the page, but not things that I necessarily know that I'll need, right? You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So, so that's sort of, and so that's one of the things I do. So I, sometimes I'll go, well, I have to do soft research on this. And so I'll just be reading about a topic for a while and I might not even have a complete story. So I'll just go, well, in the soft research, a story may emerge. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so you just have like an interest. You're just going in. I'm kind of interested in this. Yeah. And we're going to do some reading and see what comes out. Yeah. Like I, I was interested in the concept of reincarnation when I was doing Old Souls. I was interested in that. So I'm like, all right, I think there's a story in there. And the reason I thought there could be a story in there is because, so the theory of reincarnation is that, you know, you, you live your life and then you, if you make certain mistakes or don't learn the lesson that you're supposed to in that life, then you have to repeat, right? And I go, mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, that's interesting because that's what happens in life and that's what happens in stories, right? That once a character learns their lesson, they can sort of ascend to another level, right? So a character changes and becomes something else and can move on from there. And I thought, so reincarnation is a perfect framework to tell that kind of story. So maybe I'll do that, but now what, right? And so, and doing my research, I, I really realized, people ask me all the time if I, like, do you, what do you believe in reincarnation? I'm like, that's not really the point of this piece. Um, and I don't like to answer that question because I like people to go on the ride um, of the story, right? And I'm like, I don't want to answer your question. I will, I will say this. Reading about it, I was like, the wisdom, because this is thousands of years old, this belief system. I go, the wisdom in it is this. You could, in a single lifetime, you could basically be, in reincarnate, be in reincarnated, right? So it's like, I had a terrible marriage if I don't learn the lessons from that marriage and I get married again, I will repeat it. And I can't get, unless until I get better, I can't ascend. Right. Mm -hmm. It's exactly the same thing. So in a single lifetime, you get the wisdom still holds. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And yeah, so, yeah. So I was like, you know, and so, but I got that out of the soft research, right? Like, so I'm like, Oh, this is cool. So it doesn't matter for the piece, whether or not this is, actual or whether it's factual the thing is i did my soft research so i didn't i didn't make up i didn't make up one thing about reincarnation like i got a bad review where somebody said he didn't explain it and i'm like i didn't explain it because it's not explained like i didn't make it up i just read about it yeah. and went oh that's interesting i'll work that into the story because because it gives it kind of texture i can't because it's taken thousands of years to develop this these ideas I'm not going to improve on them. I'm not going to, you know what I mean? I, and, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. and it kind of, I hope, gave it a feeling of authenticity um, yeah. because I didn't make anything up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
what what about you when you do your research like when you did like boxers yeah i mean it's 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 kind of the same thing i didn't i didn't have those categories of hard and soft in my head i think it was in uh robert mckee's story right where he talks about am i remembering this right he he talks about um three different kinds of research imagination and books and uh and memory Mm-hmm. So I feel like I did all, all three of those things. So it was, it was a historical fiction piece about the Boxer Rebellion. I had to do a bunch of reading about the Boxer Rebellion. But then the, the central conflict of like this, um, you know, how, how a, a person's faith system and their culture don't always fit together. Right. Like that's, that's kind of what it was about. And I, I grew up in a Chinese Catholic community. I felt like that was me. I, I felt that tension before in my life. Right. So I did a lot of thinking about what it was like for me as a kid, you know, the, mm-hmm. the emotional realities that I lived through and, mm-hmm. and that all kind of wove together. So it was imagination, trying to figure out how a lot of the supernatural um, beliefs of the boxers would play on the page. Mm-hmm. And then it was books reading about the history of the Boxer rebellion and, um, and then my own, my own memory uh, of things. So I guess the memory part and the imagination part, that's really where the soft, what, what you're describing as the soft research really comes in. Mm-hmm. But it's true. Like you can't, you can't just rely on the facts, right? The facts really are just like a bare bones framework for the real story. It's confusing because people often confuse facts and truth, right? And so sure, sure. historians have a different idea of, of truth mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. historians will tell you that marie antoinette never said let them eat cake mm-hmm. right but in fact she did say that in everything that she did yeah right yeah it's not a lie to say that she said that yeah it only encapsulates who she was yeah that's right right that's right and so, why people were so mad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like, oh, so yeah, if you're a historian, no, she didn't say that. If you're a storyteller, she definitely said that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just as factual in its way. I think you're right. I mean, I, I think that's the, that's the purpose of fiction, right, is to get to that kind of truth as opposed to what exactly happened. It's like you said. I mean, that, that was the example that I used in my lecture. You're getting at the survival information. You're getting at the truths that will allow you to, to level up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, here, now, when you were now, so when I was coming up, there wasn't a lot of representation either uh, in the creation of those things, movies, television, comic books, all the stuff I was interested in, um, or on, on the screen, often more on the screen or on the page than actually behind the scenes. People often argue for casting when they're arguing for diversity, say, in movies or TV. And, um, and I think that's the wrong fight. Hmm. I, I, I think that that's a fight that looks like diversity, but nothing behind the scenes has to change. I think yeah. change the people who make decisions about what gets made and who gets hired and all that other stuff will fall into place. Yeah. Right. But yeah, you, I think you're right. You're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. 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 It's like yeah. you could put a lot of Asian people in a comic book and not hire any Asian people and, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? It actually is probably worse, right? It's, it's probably it is, worse. I think it's worse. Yeah. I think it's worse because then what happens is you have people um, and sometimes well-intentioned people. I don't want to – but sometimes what they're going – they're doing is they're, a, they're an outsider looking in and then they'll draw conclusions that are completely – like one of my problems with uh, 
I don't want to get into my thing with Quentin and I don't have it. I don't know him, but I don't, I'm not the biggest fan. You're not um, a fan. Okay. Yeah. I'm just going to say I've that. I've heard you say that. In yeah. 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 I try to, you know, I don't want to pick a fight. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't need me to like him. He's got plenty of fans, but um, there was something um, I had written a piece um, about a uh, former runaway slave. It was a Western. Um, and um, just as I was sending that piece around, Django got announced. And mm -hmm. so everybody was like, well, we don't want to be, you know, Quentin's got a thing. But here's what's interesting to me about Django. I don't think it was honest about how black people are. Mm -hmm. I felt, and I, I see this a lot on TV too. I can watch something on TV and go, there was nobody of color in this room when this got mm -hmm. written, or there was nobody around who could say, that's not true. And, and one of the things that I saw in uh, Django, it actually reminds me of going back to the milestone thing. One of the things I saw in Django was um, this revenge thing, this idea of going for revenge, mm -hmm. which actually seems way more European to me than African. Mm -hmm. um, and here's, here's what I mean. When I, when I forgave my brother's murderer, um, a lot of people were like, and this is a memoir is kind of built around this idea of why I was able to do that. Um, a lot of white people I knew said I could never do that. I could never, ever do that. And I, I felt like I had information that they didn't have. And I also had a different framework. But I've seen since, I've seen tons of people. There was a guy in court, a black guy who uh, a white woman, I think, had killed. Yeah, right? I, don't, he, I know exactly what you're talking about. And he yeah. forgave her. And yeah. there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that, yeah. Yeah, and my Western was more about that, was more about the person not wanting to become the person he hated. Even though he had been wronged, he was not interested in dehumanizing others. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's the difference between what I wrote and what Quentin wrote. I mean. And you feel like that, yeah, that's a more authentic representation of. Yeah. And so it's, uh, yeah. So what was yeah. interesting to me is the people, the way people reacted to Milestone was exactly like, oh, they're going to do us like we've done them. Like that's. Yeah, I see. Right? I see. Yeah, so yeah, th yeah. there's a kind of um, and so what happens when somebody's an outsider looking, what they do is they project how they think they would feel or react on those characters. Shoes, yeah. Right. But yeah. but there's a whole cultural thing that informs how that person may view that situation. That's different. Mm -hmm. There's a whole different prism. There's a whole history. There's a whole family history. There's a whole cultural history, all the things come into how people view that thing. Nothing, it's not wrong, right, to view it one way or another way, but it, it's, it's a different prism. It's a different perspective. Mm -hmm. I stand on different mm -hmm. ground. I have a different view of that situation, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That's, that's yeah. why, you know, people could look at a videotape of a guy getting beat up by the cops, and depending on where they stand, they have a different view of what that is. Well, he probably yeah. deserved it, right? Because I live in a world where that doesn't happen to you unless you deserve it. Really? I don't live in that world. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, and so um, there, I actually think it's arrogant when people feel like they can just so easily step into the shoes of someone else without really... Yeah, when, when I've talked about this with my students, um, we talk about how if you want to, if you want to write an outside experience, you got to go in with a, a like a deep level of humility yeah. and a, a willingness to do homework, like intense amounts of homework. Yeah, you really do. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I think that often if you're not willing to challenge yourself and your own belief systems, you're going to have a hard time. Yeah.
Yeah, right. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. yeah. You're like, oh, but I think it should be like this. Well, that, that, that's not how it works. <laughs> you know, um, I, uh, I had a, um, a friend ask me something. Uh, she said, she goes, whenever I watch a movie and uh, there are women in the locker room in a movie, she asked me, goes, why does this happen? Like women are just kind of walking around topless and they're kind of, she goes, that's not the way it is. She goes, women are always covering up and they're always, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. that just means there were no women around to make decisions. Yeah, that's right. That's what that means, yeah. right? That's what she's picking up on, yeah. right? And, and so you always know when people are getting you wrong. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, 100%. You always know. Yeah. It. So it's like, yeah, like there are certain shows where people are like, you should watch this. And I watch it and I go, nah, they're getting a bunch of stuff wrong, but you would never know what they're getting wrong. You know what I mean? You know? um, but when you get it right, there's, it's an interesting thing what, that happens. The, the authenticity deepens it in a very mm -hmm. interesting way. Um, if you can, if you can, like, it's really interesting. Uh, one of my favorite television shows is the Mary Tyler Moore show, which a lot of people don't know anymore, but um, it has resurgence every now and then comes up. Mm -hmm. People go, this show's really good. It's like, it's great. And one of the things that always impressed me was how well it was written and how well the, the women characters were written. There's an authenticity to those women that is amazing to me. I'd always heard about the men who wrote the show. I didn't really know about the women who wrote the show. Uh, and so now I'm like, no wonder there was an authenticity there. No wonder yeah. it felt real. Even I started watching that show when I was five. Like, how did I know it was authentic? Somehow I knew it was authentic. Yeah. And as I got older, somehow I knew it was like, no, there's something authentic. This is real. These are real people somehow. How are they doing this? I had no idea. Um, but uh, they, the, the writers who were in charge, the two men who were in charge, actively sought women, put them in the writer's room, solicited their opinions, um, asked them what they thought about things, asked them, hey, does this idea resonate for you? Does this, like, somebody came up with an idea, one of the women, and the men were like, is that something that would really happen to women? And all the women went, yeah. And they went, oh, okay, then we can do a show about it. Like they, they took mm -hmm. it in. And so there was a humility there. They didn't go, well, we're the guys in charge. We'll just do it our way and bully you around kind of. Um, they listened. And I think you can feel the difference. Yeah, even if you don't know it consciously. I, I think that's totally true for, for just writing in general. Like the, the vast majority of the work that you put into a piece, if you do it right, the reader's not even going to know, right? Oh, the they're not consciously know about, but it's, they're going to know on an unconscious level. Yeah. They're going to feel it. Yeah. Yeah. One of my, one, a student of mine once said to me, uh, Brian, we're going to do all this work and nobody's ever going to notice. I'm like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. like you don't want them to notice. It's, it's, it's a, uh, it's a magic trick, right? Yeah. So it's like, no, you don't want them to know your palm in the card. That's the whole thing, right? That's yeah. how the magic happens. Um, but a lot of people are, that tells me that that person is being motivated by getting credit for doing the work, not credit for the work. Mm -mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Look at the work I'm doing. It's like, well, okay, but that's, a, that's not the right motivator. That shouldn't be your motivation for writing the piece. Um, there is stuff that I am proud of that no one ever notices like that I've written. I go, man, <laughs> that transition. Sure. I'm so happy with that transition, you know, and all they know is they just kept turning pages. Right. Yeah. And it's like, like being a letterer in comics. 
a great yeah. letter you don't even you never notice you never that's notice true a great yeah. that's true best letter in the world you have no idea what they're that's, doing that's true yeah um okay so uh well this is interesting because i asked you one question and this is what we did i said i, I think i asked you um how your work has changed over time right yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. right yeah so um what do you find your main focus is like when you start a piece where do you start and, and, and ideas can come from anywhere. So where do you start? Uh, is it a, emotional? Is it factual? Is it some historical thing that you're interested in? What, what is it? And then, um, and then what are your next steps? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I used to say that my pieces would start with a voice. Like I'd have a character talking to me in my head, you know, before I went to sleep or while I was in the shower or taking a walk, I'd hear a character talking in my head. Uh, but nowadays, I don't think that's necessarily true anymore. So just recently, I did a book uh, that was my first nonfiction graphic novel uh, about a high school basketball team that I followed for a season. And that really began with a relationship. Like, I got to know the coach of the team, right? I guess maybe, maybe that's a voice, too. Maybe it was his voice that, that got in my head. Sure. But I, I do think that what led me to that project was this fear that I had run out of stories. And, and I think it's exactly what you were talking about earlier. Like the target got way smaller. So, right. so ideas that I would have just run with in my 20s, I was like, nowadays I'd be like, no, that, that's terrible. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. You know? So it, it, um, it, it took a while for me to get to that point. Well, I, I, I think once, once I feel like um, I, can, I have a beginning, middle, and end in my head. And it, doesn't, it can be really vague. It can be a really vague feeling of where the ending is. Uh -huh. I'm also comfortable enough to move on to the next step, which is outlining. I, I outline a lot. Uh, okay. Are you an outliner? Uh, no, not really. But I, I will tell you that in a second. I want to okay. know when you say beginning, middle, and end, because I hear this a lot. What do you mean when you say that? I mean, I kind of know what the emotional feeling is going to be at the end. You know, I kind of have a vague idea of how this character is going to have to change. Okay. Like what, what the, what the deeply felt need of this character is and okay. how they're going to have to change to meet that need. All right. So like that's super vague, right? But that's okay. Like that's enough. That's enough okay. to get to the next stage. Sure. I get it. So at the beginning though, is that then the, the opposite of that ending? Like who are like, what do you, what are you calling a beginning? What does the beginning mean, mean to you? The beginning of the story or the beginning of the process? Beginning of the story. When you say beginning, middle, and end, can you define what those things are? Yeah, the beginning, I mean, the beginning, I do, I do use your, uh, your Pixar trick sometimes to figure okay. this out. The once upon a time. The story's fine, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah mm -hmm. I, do, I do do that sometimes. But, um, but I, I think I tend to think of things in terms of balance. So I think in the beginning, the the character, the character's life is in balance, right? The, okay. the main character's life is in balance. It's usually a crappy balance, but it's in some kind of balance. <laughs> sure. And the, okay. whole, the whole story is about how their life gets thrown out of balance and they're trying to return it back into balance. Okay. But it could be, a, it, it, they want a better balance than they had at the beginning. Okay. Right? So this, that's generally how I try to think of it. I try to think okay. of what, what's, yeah, what's the balance that they lost What's the balance that they want? Again. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then, then the third part, the end is what? The end is their final desperate attempt at balance. 
and, and their life is going to end up in balance at some point, right? Right. Th- things are going to settle back down, but it could either settle back down in a really terrible way or it could settle back down in a, in a good way. Okay. You know, whatever, whatever that deeply, that hole in their heart was at the beginning of the story is going to get filled in some way. It's either going to get filled with something good or it's going to get filled with crap. But okay. It, it's going to get filled. Good. Thanks. Uh, yeah. well, because people people say that and then they don't they don't define beginning middle and end and I'm like well that what are you saying what wait so mean? how do you talk about it how do you talk about beginning middle and end well I don't talk about it okay you don't talk about beginning middle and end you don't think of beginning middle and end well I just think of, I think a three act structure oh okay 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 right so for me it's proposal argument conclusion right so okay right yeah so, yeah. so yeah you make a proposal you know money's the best thing in the world, right? <laughs> right, right. You argue, you know, uh, because you can disprove or prove that proposal, right? So you disprove that, right? Not something I believe. I couldn't prove it very easily, right? <laughs> right. Uh-huh. And then, um, and then uh, uh, and in fact, I think it would be difficult to prove if you're honest, right? Yeah, sure. sure. Right. Um, so even if you started off as a writer thinking money is everything, it would be difficult to prove if you argued both sides equally, right? Uh-huh. That's why there's no classic stories about how money is everything, right? You know, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. all King Midas and Scrooge and, you know, <laughs> right, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and then uh, uh, conclusion. So uh, given act one and act two, how is the character in act three? How have they changed? How, so it's a direct comparison. Uh, this, mm. given this, equals this the other way to think of it is thesis antithesis synthesis mm-hmm. i see i see yeah. Yeah, yeah i mean that's very very logical right that's a very uh here, here's actually something that came up for 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 me when i was uh lecturing about your book uh-huh. <laughs> just a couple of weeks ago uh-huh. one of the you know you talk about the armature right and you talk about how if something is not connected to the armature you should just cut it out Mm-hmm. So one of the questions I got from my students is how intense are you about that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like how intense are you super intense about that? Can, can something just be in cause they think it's funny, even if it's not directly tied to the armature. So are you asking me how? Yeah. The, the answer I gave is I was like, I'm pretty sure Brian McDonald is pretty intense about that. <laughs> I am. Just cut it out. I would cut it out. Yeah. I would cut it out. The, the, that's the difference between, in my mind, actually being a professional and being an mm. amateur is being able to cut out the stuff you love because it doesn't so, fit. So you would kill that darling, even if, even if in your table read or whatever, in your beta reading, um, the people got some kind of pleasure out of it. Yes. You could see them laugh. You'd still cut it out. Yeah. Okay. Charlie Chaplin used to, um, he, he was do- shooting a movie once and uh, he did something and the crew laughed and it was something that wasn't necessarily supposed to be funny. So he was like, why did you guys laugh? And they said, well, because before you had done it this way and this time, he says, oh, so you're laughing at something behind the scenes that has nothing to do with the piece. I could be misled by that laughter. Mm-hmm. So he started working with people who didn't think he was funny because mm-hmm. then he wouldn't be misled by their laughter. Um, yeah. And so, um, there's a story in, um, in the art of dramatic writing in the book, the art of dramatic writing by Egri. And, um, he says in that book, he tells the story of, of Rodin, uh, Rodin sculpture. 
where um, Rodin had made this sculpture. I forget the name of the sculpture. It's an actual sculpture. Um, but uh, there was a woman and she had a robe and uh, she's in a robe and um, that, that, well, anyway, that's what it, what it is. And he, he was very proud of the sculpture. And so he, he went and woke up an apprentice and said, hey, what do you think of this sculpture? And the apprentice went on and on about how beautiful the hands were. And uh, they were like, they're alive. It's, they're amazing. And, uh, and he asked somebody else and they said the same thing. And he asked somebody else and they said the same thing. And so he, he cut the hands off the sculpture. The hands are off the sculpture now um, because they were stealing focus um, from the main piece. Okay. So, well, so the answer I give my students is right. I was like, Brian McDonald would be pretty intense about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just think it makes the whole piece better. Yeah. Uh, you, you, the, the problem is you can get away. It's not like you can't get away with it. You could get yeah. away with it. Yeah, absolutely. The problem is where do you draw the line? Every time you do it, you pick away at the integrity of your piece. Every time you let that slide and this slide, but I like this line, but I like this character, but I like the pretty soon it's a mess. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you, I, do you think the rule about that is different though for novels as opposed to the movies? Because the novel is not graphic novel, but just yeah, prose novel, prose. right? It is, uh, it's, it's much longer. It can be much more intense, but, or not intense isn't the right word. It can be, more involved maybe is the right word you know what mm -hmm. i mean like the the structure is different right so do you feel like you can add you can leave some of those stuff th that kind of stuff in i think that because we have been trained by literature um that people will leave that stuff in mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i don't think it helps and i don't think it is different right because it's a, I think human beings are very impressed. We're very impressed with ourselves. We created literature, but we didn't create storytelling. I think storytelling is our natural equipment. I think it comes with us, which mm -hmm. is why all human beings throughout history have done it in all cultures, right? It comes with us. It's part of our operating system that we tell stories. The structure of stories is built into that our operating system, I believe, right? It's built mm -hmm. in. Now, Culturally, we can tell stories differently, like a particular kind of theater, a particular kind of this, a particular kind of, th but that's different. That's like saying, to me, it's the difference. With, it's like different cultures have different food, but we all eat, right? <laughs> different cultures have different ways of, um, of presenting stories often, but we all tell stories and, and at their base level, it's all, always the same. I think what literature has done is it's tricked us into thinking that stories do things that, it, that they don't do. Mood is my favorite example. Mood, right? So sometimes people think um, a story can be just mood, right? Like, it, what about a mood piece? Just mood. Like, that's not a story. I'm not saying you can't have mood. I'm not saying that, right? Um, now, that might be poetry, Right. Like I'm not a poet. I can't speak about poetry. A poet might have something different to say about that. So I'm not going to I'm not. That's not my playground. I don't know anything about that. But I'm just saying, let's just say maybe that's in the realm of poetry. That's where that goes. And I'm not saying stories can't be poetic. But stories aren't poetry. They can be poetic. I mean, there's epic poems, but those just they just rhyme. I think so. Yeah. People could remember them. That's why I think they rhyme. Okay. 
right? I think mm-hmm. they it, you can you can remember a long story if this leads to this leads to this leads to this. I think that's actually I think it's very functional. Um, I think well, that's why epic poems are poems. So the thing about the thing about mood is that um, this is a, an example I often use in class. I go okay because people will say like, well, what about mood? You can't a story just be about mood? I go okay. If I walk up to you and I say, hey, Gene, I got something to tell you. Clear blue sky. Seagulls in the distance. Salt air coming in off the ocean. Hot sand beneath my toes. Okay, see you later. You would say, (laughs) you didn't tell me anything, right? But mood can be used to tell a story just by saying, man, my trip to Mexico was amazing. Clear blue sky, seagulls off in the distance, salt, right? All the same stuff. Now I'm telling you something. Now yeah. I am proving proposal. My trip to Mexico was amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Argument, here's the information. That's how mm-hmm. mood comes into play, right? Mm-hmm. But what happens with literature is they go, well, this is just about mood. It's like, that's not the way people tell stories. Mm. So it's an artificial thing. I think it's a trick of literature. I see. And I think we're impressed with it because we invented it. And I think we're, that's why we're more impressed by the written word than the spoken word. That's why we've reduced the spoken word, although it's coming back, which is interesting. But this is why yeah, we yeah, yeah. reduced the spoken word to the tradition, the oral tradition, right? Which is like before they could write, they had to talk to each other. It's like, that. wait a minute, you know, <laughs> like, yeah you're saying that it's obviously better that we read and write than talk to each other. That's not a real thing. That's just a cultural thing we decided is true. Um, And I don't think that the oral tradition, I hate that term because I don't think it's tradition. It's not a tradition. It is the way we operate. Again, like food, eating food is not a tradition. Eating food at Thanksgiving is a tradition, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, but eating is not a tradition. So the oral tradition is not a tradition. Yeah. Reading and writing is more of a tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, um, but we've reduced, we, we try to put the natural stuff as if it's less important than the stuff we invented. We're very impressed with. It's fantastic. So, okay. So, so I mean, a, a lot of what you're talking about right now is how the structure of story you're getting at something almost outside of yourself, right? You're getting at something um, that might be eternal, maybe? Would you call it eternal? The, yeah, the, I think so. Okay. Okay. What the, the, the very last slide of my, of my lecture is actually a quote from you about how um, the, the, the term self-expression does not serve modern storytellers, right? You, yeah. you remember that quote? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so he, so here's here's another question that came up from my from my uh, my students. Um, what does that mean for memoir? You know what I mean? Like oh yeah. The the yeah. way the way I think the way a modern storyteller would approach memoir is they would think I'm going to use my life and I'm going to express myself using the material of my life of my memories. Mm-hmm. So how how do you how do you square that with the idea expressed in your quote. At fr- they asked me, first second asked me to write this memoir. I didn't want to write it. Okay. So, but, but even in the memoir, you're still following your own rule, right? It's yes. not about 
question. Okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, but I'm going to get to this in a second because here was the thing. So uh, uh, Mark Siegel said to me, we were, we were having lunch and he said, uh, I was trying to pitch other stuff and he's like, ah, I don't know. I don't know. He goes, you know, if you wrote a memoir, I think I could get that through. I'm like, hmm. And, he, and, and when I first started talking to First Second about doing a book for them, it was within a week or so that my brother was murdered. So they knew all mm. about that. And so mm. um, he said, well, is there something you can do about your, you and your brother? And I, I thought, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't. And I, I said, I'll think about it. And I just thought, there's nothing. First of all, who cares about my life? Like, I'm not a, you know what I mean? I'm not a famous guy. And, uh, you know, and, and so I'm like, well, who cares? So, it can't be about me. How do I find a story? How do I tell the story and not make it about me? That was a real, it, and it, until I figure it out, the armature of that piece had to do with um, how ultimately it was racism that killed my brother hmm. and the system of racism that killed my brother. And, and that racism, my, my proposal was that racism is living by the rules of dead people. That was my proposal. Hmm. I used my life to argue that case, mm. but it wasn't about me. It was about a bigger system because my, my story was about the bigger system, but I needed a person who happened to me to live that emotional experience. Like it's not a bunch of facts about systemic racism, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's, um, did you see the lecture, the EG lecture? I gave. I don't think I did. Okay. So I, I, so when I was just beginning this book, I was asked to give a lecture and they didn't want me to give a lecture on storytelling. Um, they were like, well, is there anything you're working on? I go, well, I'm just starting this book. And I told them the idea for the book. And they were like, yes, you have to talk about that. Mm -hmm. I hadn't really started the book yet, but I sort of knew what I was going to write about. And so basically that lecture was a mini version of, of, what the, the, of book, the book. book. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. And so if you want to see it, if you see, if you, if you look up uh, EG Conference, Brian McDonald, you can see okay. the lecture. But that's a mini version of the book. But I had to make a – so what I, instead of talking about systemic racism, I had to make it an emotional journey. And I could have done that whether it was me, a fictional character, or someone else. It just happens to be me, right? Um, but I could never think of that character as me i had to be you know just like when i have to do the research about what it might be like to lose a child um i didn't have to do the research because i was the research yeah yeah but i but i and so i but i had to feel those emotions as strongly as i could and it was i just had access to those emotions yeah that's the difference i had access to those emotions but my job would be to express emotions if i was writing a superman story too and I'd have to be honest, right? So, yeah. so the job didn't change. Um, and I, and I, I really was about making it so, about something bigger than myself. It wasn't about me. Um, I find that's a mistake a lot of writers make. And when you write about yourself, look, I didn't, I didn't talk about every detail of my life. And I didn't talk about every embarrassing detail of my life. But I did talk about some of them. And the reason I was able to do that was um, it was not about me. It's mm -hmm. the same reason I talk about my dyslexia. I talk about dyslexia because when I heard one of my favorite 
filmmakers talk about his own dyslexia, it made me feel better. Mm. He's an unbelievable writer, just great and smart and all these things. But I, I heard him talk about how he felt stupid and all those things that I felt as a dyslexic kid. And it made me feel better. And the only reason I talk about it, look, and it's embarrassing to talk about because it's um, often equated with intelligence. And so, mm -hmm. uh, and you internalize that as a kid because you don't feel smart and you internalize. And that stuff is all still there with me. But the reason I talk about it is for other people. Mm. That's why I talk about it. I talk about it so other people can hear me talking about it so that they go, oh, well, okay, maybe I'm okay. So you're not into uh, the idea of writing as self-therapy. No. Stories, writing stories can be therapeutic. They For the writer? Yes, but okay. they aren't therapy. Okay. Does that make sense? Sure, sure. Yeah. It can be therapeutic to go sit in the woods. That's also not therapy. Okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a secondary, it's like a side effect as opposed to the main thing that you're trying to go for. Yeah. 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 It can have the benefits, uh, but you're, you know, you're, you're not really getting at the real problem, you know, yeah. you know, yeah. if you're just writing about it. Um, and there are writers, I've heard writers who say, well, no, I won't go to therapy. If I go to therapy, I'll know what my problems are. And they won't have anything to write about. Right. <laughs> so sure. yeah. Uh, and then other people go, Oh no, therapy told me who I was. And so now I can, I can tap into it or I understand, or I'm not afraid. Yeah. Because the interesting thing is, you do have to be honest about your perspective and point of view. Mm -hmm. That part is about you because you can't have anybody else's point of view or perspective or, or truth, right? So do you think you have to insert yourself even in a fictional piece in some way? Yeah. Like, do you, would you do that as um, a voiceover narrator or as a stand-in character? Well, for instance... Um, I don't know if the, the X-Men, um, except for its inception, really, has ever had a marginalized, a person from a marginalized group as a regular writer. Mm -hmm. But I think it should. Mm -hmm. I think that a marginalized person um, can write about the X-Men who are mutants, who are dismissed by society, who are hated by society in a different way than somebody who's part of the mainstream. And there would be nuance about that experience that somebody else can't bring, right? Um, it, any kind of marginalized person would do. And I think that when it was created, it was created by two Jewish guys, right? Um, like a lot of superheroes, actually. Um, yeah, like almost all of them. Yeah. Almost all the big ones, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that was coming, a lot of that was coming from the perspective of a marginalized group. And then I yeah. think, you know what I mean? And that yeah, absolutely. Yeah. adds a depth that doesn't have to be part of the narration, but it's the way it's kind of like I was saying about Django versus the Freeman, the piece I wrote, right? That there's a certain perspective that people bring when they are from a group that is dismissed or that has to confront stereotypes on a regular basis or has to deal with these microaggressions or has to right? like mm -hmm. imagine the depth that someone can bring could bring. I, I remember, when I uh, used to read the Fantastic Four, when John Byrne was doing it. And I always liked Ben Grimm. I always liked the thing. And I couldn't figure out why. And I go, you know what? 
The thing is the character who's closest to me. The mm-hmm. thing is a character who's viewed as a monster on the outside, but as a human on the inside. Mm-hmm. And I think that a, ki- uh, that a person who is viewed that way by society would add depth to that character that doesn't exist yet. I think you're right. I think you're right. I think a lot of comics is like that, right? A lot of comics, the writers they hire don't always make sense. I mean, the, I think Wonder Woman got her first female writer when? 90s? It was pretty like late. It was late. It was way too late. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe late 80s, 90s. Yeah. yeah. I, think it, maybe it was, I think it was Tina Robbins, maybe? I, I think remember. that's true. It, I think that's true. Yeah. 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 It, was, it was in the 80s or 90s, I think, which is yeah. crazy for a character yeah. that dates back to the 1930s, was it? Or early 40s? Yeah. Yeah, during the war yeah. anyway, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Makes I, no sense. It makes no sense at all. No. Um, I wrote a, a television pilot, and uh, it didn't go out to very many people. I'm really proud of the pilot. I, I hope it sees the light of day one day. But, um, but I wrote this pilot, and uh, the character, because for 30 years people said, well, you can't write a black character, you know? So the character's a white character, the main character. But... What I did with that character is I thought I put that character in situations and in places and made him confront things that a white writer might not do. Mm-hmm. So um, I thought, well, there's still a perspective here that comes from me that a white writer wouldn't bring. Again, it goes to that diversity question. I'm also me and part of the diversity thing. It doesn't have to look like that on the outside. Mm-hmm. Right. My movie, Whiteface. Have you ever seen that movie? Uh huh. That movie, um, you know, was made. Well, geez, almost 20 years, 20 years ago now. But it was made 20 years ago. Um, But it was about the problems clowns would have if they were an actual race of people. But here was my problem making that movie. Um, Well, first of all, when people saw the movie, um, uh, I, I, in fact, I had, a, a, I, use, I use my own experience to inform their position. But when uh, one guy I know, uh, my lawyer at the time was Jewish and he goes, this film is obviously about being Jewish. You can't even get this movie if you're not Jewish. <laughs> well, uh, okay. Um, so it allowed, it allowed everybody to see their own group, their own marginalized, you know, uh, but, but in order to make that movie, um, you had to believe the clowns were a race of people. And the only way people would believe that is if all the actors were white. Hmm. The second I put clown makeup on somebody of color, people would have said, you're hitting people over the head with your idea. You're hitting people over the head with your concept. You're hitting, right? Because whiteness is normal in this country, in this culture. And so it can disappear and people can just see the clown makeup. You put yeah, the clown that's makeup exactly on it. Right. Yeah. That's exactly right, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so I was able to make a film about race um, with only white people in it, right? Yeah. Because that's what it had to be in order yeah, to work the way it worked. Yeah. And so, um, and so I, I think that uh, we have to look below the surface of these things when we talk about diversity mm-hmm. because we're only talking about what's on the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, and that's not, that's not helpful. So I think that, um, so even though, yeah, Wonder Woman being written by a woman, first of all, that took way too long and it should be written by a woman. Yeah. But what happens to Superman if it's written by a woman? Yeah. Yeah. Of right. Course. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. You get a, a new set of stories. You actually yeah. get a new set of stories. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you, you and I, I think, I think we're both Gen X, right? We're yeah. both Gen X. We, we both came up in a, in a time when pretty much all the protagonists of all of our books and movies were white. Yeah. Do you feel like, and, and now the rules have suddenly changed. It feels like it's fairly recent. It's pretty quick. Changed, like, boom, right? like it's all different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was like, I, I think it was like, uh, it was like Black Panther, Crazy Rich Asians in the same year. And right. Right. People were like paying attention to yeah. Yeah. people of color. Do you feel like because of the time in which we grew up, we have internalized rules about stories that are not necessarily helpful? You know what I mean? Yes, I do know what you mean. Like when you, when you close your eyes and, and think about the leading man, do you, I, I, do you still picture a white guy? I feel like I still picture a white guy. Depends on the story I want to tell. Mm. Um, look, here's the thing. When I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, I'm like, I want to write some Indiana. I want to write an Indiana Jones. Like, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I still want to do that. Like, that's not, but I don't exclusively want to do that. And I remember in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, I remember uh, there's the, the pirates in that movie, the black guys. And I remember my friend and I, both black guys, going, who's that guy? I want to, I, look, what's that guy's story? Like, we yeah. wanted to, you know what I mean? And so, like, can that guy have a movie? Cause that would be cool. You know? Yeah. Um, and I remember how happy we were to see Lando, like, cause we wanted to play too. Right. Like, yeah. like, Hey, I want to be part of this. This is cool. Like star Wars didn't have anybody that looked like me. Right. But then, uh, then we got Lando. So we were like, Hey, at least we got Lando. That's the way, <laughs> you know, you know <laughs> it's kind of way that felt. But, um, I, I, I have a friend who's an actor and he, um, he, has a character who is he's gay and he has a character who's a woman but it's not drag hmm. it's a character who is a woman and i i like i he had, used to have a show like a live show or like a talk show as this character carlotta hmm. and he had me on the show and i knew him he was my neighbor like we shared a wall he was my neighbor i knew this guy but when he was carlotta he was carlotta like I was talking to this whole different person. He, she's a full, in fact, Carlotta got a job. He went and applied for a job as Carlotta and got the job. That's how complete. And then he, then he, he said, then I had to confess. He goes, you know what? I was just testing out something. I, I'm an actor. And they're like, oh, that's okay. That's okay. We can make the schedule around you. He's like, no, I'm not this person. But what was interesting is he got a lot of flack from the gay community because it wasn't a drag character. It was just a woman, and he happened to be playing a woman. But, it, but he played all kinds of characters. And so the, the gay community is like, this is not drag. And I feel like sometimes it's like, you can get flack for your own community, from your own community because it doesn't look the way they think it ought to look. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, you know what? In order to tell a story about race, it shouldn't have to look necessarily the way you expect it would look. Mm-hmm. It could be the thing in the Fantastic Four, or it could be something in the X-Men. It could be, right? It could be, yeah. there are a lot of ways it can look. And I think that often our own communities decide it's got to look like this way. Um, and that's not a very nuanced view either. And so we can yeah. get trapped in that thing. So it's a weird thing that I just don't want to be locked into anybody's idea of what my stories ought to look like. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I, I, that's something that I, I, uh, I talk to my students about all the time, right? Like writing is so hard. Why would you add any 
impediments in front of another writer. Right. Yeah. So hard. Just, it's yeah. yeah. Don't do that to people. Yeah. You know, like. <laughs> so I have your Superman over here, and I haven't read. I have one of your Superman because you did a couple, right? You did the Clan Superman. I did the Clan recently, yeah, and I yeah. did a, I did a Chinese Superman for a while, right? Uh, I did a few issues of the the main Superman book. So you did a few issues. Okay, that's good yeah. because I was like, I was a little like. So he's got to do a Chinese Superman. He can't do, you know what I mean? I was a little. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. You, you know, you sure. know what I mean? Like, yeah. Well, that doesn't seem. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll, so, so uh, it's funny because when DC Comic DC proposed that to me, that's idea. That was not my idea. The Chinese okay. Superman was not my idea. Okay. And they were like a little bit apologetic about it. They're like, Oh, were they? Hey, don't take this the wrong way, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were they were super nice about it. Sure. And, and it, it turns out. I mean, one of the reasons why I did it, at first I really didn't want to do it, but one of the reasons I did it was because Jim Lee told me, like, it was his idea, you know? Oh, okay. I got called into his office. He was like, it was my idea. I was like, all right, if it's your idea, let's do it. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. That's cool. That, I get, okay. I, yeah. I, but I was a little, you know what I mean? I was yeah, a little yeah, like, yeah. nah, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't write the regular yeah. Superman, but you did write some regular... I did write a little bit of regular Superman. Okay. It was like everybody's least favorite version of Superman, though. It was New 52 Superman. Okay. I was at the very tail end of, right okay. before they killed him. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you follow, you, you've been following like a, a bunch of the, the reboots and stuff of the, of the DC universe, but. I, uh, you know, uh, here's my, here's my problem with most comics now. This has been happening probably since the nineties. When I was a kid or teenager, I read an interview with John Byrne and it stuck with me. And he said, um, Remember, every issue of a comic is somebody's first issue. Yeah. And he yeah. wrote from that. So you could yeah. just pick up a comic yeah. back then not, because that was like philosophy. That anymore, you know, it's like, oh, so I have to buy 50 comics to read this one? And then I just kind of stop yeah. buying comics. Like, because I can't sample it as easily. So, no, I don't follow stuff because I'm like, I can't. Unless you get it at the beginning of some new run. Yeah. Even then, it's tied into some other thing, and this it crosses over with every other comic, and it's like you know what? Nah, never mind. I you think know? that's why kids are reading graphic novels now. I mean, I think so. I don't know anybody except for my own kids that read superhero comics, right? Monthly superhero comics, mm -hmm. and they only read it because I'm their dad, right? So right. I have superhero comics around, right? But everybody in their class, all the kids in the class, they all read graphic novels, all of them. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of kids, I'm glad that that's happening, actually. I'm yeah. glad that graphic novels are finding, um, it's, a, it's about time that they were treated uh, like literature. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, 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 the prejudice against them was um, a false one to begin with. And people tried to, to bring them up. I think Will Eisner did mm -hmm. some amazing stuff. I don't think it was until Mouse, though, that, that really came. In, yeah, in this yeah. country, anyway. Yeah. That it became and even mouse. It, there was no follow up to mouse for, I don't know, decade and a half, maybe. Yeah, that's true. Right. Well, after mouse, what was it? It was like a wasteland. I guess, I mean, love and rockets was there. There was a lot of stuff that was in the indie space, but uh, most of it did not break through to the mainstream the way. Yeah, mouse had. that's true. Yeah. Love and rockets. But the, yeah, it was just, it, that was, it had its loyal fans, but yeah, yeah it, it yeah. didn't, it didn't. Yeah. There was yeah. no crossover appeal with Love and Rock. There was no, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great book, amazing book. Deserves more attention, but. They were well drawn. 
Yeah. That's what I'm going to say. That's what, that's what I would say. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I can see that. I can see that. They, yeah. they, they definitely do not follow the, uh, the, the rules. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, like guy, they had some meandering. It's like, this guy's just going to the record store. That's your story? Yeah, he went to the yeah. record store. <laughs> okay. It's like, that, that's, those are some excellent drawings of a guy going to the record store. You know? <laughs> so I feel like you can do all those things. It's kind of like the mood thing. Yeah, yeah, I think you can do all those things within the confines of a story. You don't, it doesn't lessen it. I, I, like I've said it before, but I've never seen anything that would be hurt by a story. I see. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, if yeah. you can make a case and go, but a story would ruin it because of X, Y, and Z. Okay. But I've never seen that. I've only seen something that would be improved by it. Yeah. Right? But um, I would like to, what I find in my classes is, the people who resist story, who want to do something different and want to do something, you know, along those lines are the people who would benefit from it most. They are the people, because if they could figure out how to work within those confines and still do what they did, they would reach more people. And I think tell more effective, more impactful stories. Um, but, uh, but they resist the whole, it's almost like it's a different part of the brain or something where they resist it. Um, I had a friend when he was in art school uh, studying illustration and graphic design. What he was told by his teachers were, was that people who design well are almost never good illustrators and vice versa. Hmm. And they said, we think it might be just different ways the brain is working. Hmm. And, um, and I, I wonder about that sometimes with story stuff. Is there a way that the brain is working that makes people think, all I need is good characters and, and that'll be enough. Or, and then the other side, the extreme is all I need is a bunch of stuff happening and that'll be enough. And those two things by themselves are never enough. They need to come together. Right. So I right, think that's th an interesting, that's an interesting thought about the, the graphic design versus illustration and how that applies to story. That was an amazing conversation, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm thanks. glad I got to ask all those questions that came up during a, a residency <laughs> a couple weeks ago. That yeah, awesome. that was so cool, man. Uh, yeah, I wish we talked more, but maybe they made a better show that we like, what, talk every 20 years or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so. <laughs> thanks for watching. You are a storyteller. If you have any questions or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, leave a comment below or email us at hello at beliefagency.com. 